Greetings, it's Terry at Cottage in the Court. I recently reviewed a book called The Meditative Gardener, Cultivating Mindfulness of Body, Feelings, and Mind by Cheryl Wilfong. Let me tell you, in these days and times, this book was right on time. It's been on my bookshelf for a while, but I'm a throwback kind of girl. Sometimes books that we've had, that we might have read at one time, take on a whole new meaning if you give them a second try. The Meditative Gardener, Cultivating Mindfulness of Body, Feelings, and Mind. Go to the blog, cottageinthecourt.com, and you'll read my review. I totally immersed myself in this book. Speaking of gardeners and being mindful in the garden, I'd like to introduce you to someone I can honestly call friend. I have known about this man for over 20 years and his words have always left me clamoring for more. He speaks from his heart. He is a true steward of the land. And he also wrote an awesome book on hellebores. See Colston Burrell. I am elated to share my chat with him, with you. It took place on the last day of Pollinator Week, a rainy afternoon, and we recapped on a wonderful Monday. Because when you're talking to someone that is in the same frame of mind that you're in, the conversation can go on and on and on. Let me introduce you to C. Colston Burrell. Hi, Colston. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Absolutely wonderful. Now, I have to ask you, what's the C for? Uh, I don't tell very many people, so you're very special. It stands for Charles. Oh, wow, wow. Uh, but I can't stand being called Charlie or Chuck. So <laughs> I don't blame you. Colston is so much more elegant, trust me. So yeah, but It's a family name, and I've, I've always been Cole, so I didn't like it when I was growing up because it was odd. Uh-huh. Of course, children are mean, and they made fun of it, but mm-hmm. now, now it's terrific. Oh, well, so... Tell me, what what do people need to know about you? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I've known about you for quite some time. I think everyone needs to know about you. So tell me your three fast facts about who you are. Uh, my three fast facts are, uh, I'm an avid gardener. I call myself a whore for chlorophyll. So if it's green and non-invasive, I'll grow it. (laughs) Uh, I am an avid bird watcher and a wildlife gardener and I've always been a naturalist nerd ever since I was a kid. In fact, I was a bird watcher before I was a gardener and I had an operation on my eye as a child and I couldn't use binoculars. So that's when I turned to more to plants and gardening because plants did move and you didn't need a binocular to see them. Oh, 
So that's it. And I'm an avid uh, music lover and movie lover. And so I think those are probably the three things. I My CD collection is vast indeed and all genre of music. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I love the sounds of nature and I love the sounds uh, that people make with their voices and with other instruments. If you were in the garden early in the morning and you wanted to listen to some music, what would you listen to? Well, that's interesting because I never listen to music when I'm in the garden because mm -hmm. there's too many other sounds going on. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, that's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about it because mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've ever listened to music in the garden unless it was during some kind of function mm -hmm. where music was coming out of the house. Uh, it would be jazz of some sort, vocal jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. uh, Chris Connor, June Christie, uh, yeah, Billy Holiday. Yeah. One of those. Something mellow, right? Or some of the wonderful new jazz singers. Mm -hmm. uh, I've fallen totally head over heels in love with a young singer named Joyce Elaine Jewell. And we're Facebook friends, and she lives in. Milan, and I'm constantly begging her to bring her act over to the <laughs> But she's, she's just wonderful. Oh, that's, so, that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> but, but, but it was interesting because I too love jazz, so I, I get it. So how did you become engrossed, other than the eye operation, how did you become engrossed in this wonderful world of horticulture? Well, I'm, a, I guess, a fourth generation gardener. My great I was lucky enough to live in a, uh, grow up in a matriarchal household with a great grandmother, a grandmother, and a mother um, who were all interested in gardening. And so I, I guess it was in my blood. My great grandmother loved flowers, peonies especially. She, we still have some of her peonies. Mm -hmm. It was that oh. big floppy double pink one that everyone loves. It's yeah. been around forever. And Festiva Maxima, the big double white with the yeah. red flecks. Um, and they also, she had a big plum tree, which we climbed as kids in her little, you know, herb, slightly urban suburban Richmond garden. Uh -huh. uh, so I grew up eating from the garden and picking from the garden. And more importantly, with the annuals she grew, uh, watching the butterflies and so I was you know at, at the time the the flowers were just vehicles for butterflies <laughs> right right so I you know had to you know switch not had to but began to switch to not just the community of animals around the flowers but the flowers themselves mm -hmm. and when you when you see butterflies in the garden it just in my opinion means there's life there Yes. Energy, yes, yes, yes. So tell me about Bird Hill. What is Bird Hill? Bird Hill, I call it my uh, pastiche of woodlands, gardens, and meadows that is alive with birds and butterflies. <laughs> the way I describe it. Uh, the name came from a, f a farm that my family looked into buying when I was a teenager. 
My mother loved the country and things old, and we grew up in, in not a typical suburb, but in the suburbs, but atypical because we had about 1,800 acres of woods behind our house. Mm. It was undeveloped at the time. Now it's all shopping malls and things. But mm. uh, so it was my playground. And I love that place, but my mother wanted an old house desperately. So we looked around, and one of the houses we looked at in Amelia County, Virginia, was a place called Bird Grove. And I, I always loved that name. It was so evocative of my interest and the idea of the grove, the sacred grove with trees. And so when we found this place, which was not just a grove, it was a forest on top of the hill. <laughs> Bird Grove uh, morphed into Bird Hill. So. And when people come to visit in the spring, I have an open garden every spring mm -hmm. um, on Easter Saturday. And the sound of the goldfinches is deafening. So it, oh. it's a very well uh, aptly named uh, property for sure. <laughs> wow. And you're, you also have a business, right? Yes, uh, Native Landscape Design and Restoration. And tell me why you went towards the Native mindset. Well, mostly because of those 1,800 acres behind mm -hmm. the house. So even though my you know, family tradition was Siberian iris and, and the peonies and annuals, uh, zinnias and things, of course, which butterflies love, mm -hmm. when we moved to this house when I was just about two and a half years old. It was in the woods and my mother's plants that she brought from my grandmother's garden didn't do particularly well in the shade and the, and the, you know, the native soil. It wasn't a double dug perennial garden. So, <laughs> um, and of course that was in the 60s at the time of beautification and Lady Bird Johnson's push towards uh, native plants and wildflowers and roadside beautification and so I followed my mother into the woods where she was endeavoring to discover what grew around us that would survive in the shade that we had since her grandmother's flowers didn't do particularly well so that was my uh, I guess my first love and because even at an early age I realized the interconnection between the birds and wildlife that I loved and the plants so that was my very much my learning curve and Silent Spring and all those things all the way into books on cultivating wildflowers. I think I was probably nine by the time I read every book on wildflowers at our <laughs> library. <laughs> so, um, so I had a lot to learn um, out in the field because I devoured what the books had to say and now I had to learn it firsthand for myself. Mm -hmm. So, And it's always stuck and of um, being a horror for chlorophyll, or I, as I often call myself, a little not quite so risque, a, a certified chlorophyll addict. Um, so I, I was also very interested in the tropics. Um, you know, the, the Climatron at Missouri Botanical Garden was fairly new back then, brand new. Mm. And I had one of the Time Life series of books that had pictures of the Climatron and I'd always been fascinated by jungles and orchids. And so at the same time I was appreciating native plants, I was growing orchids and had banana trees and, you know, philodendrons that took three people to carry into the Oh house. my goodness. <laughs> so 
Uh, I've always had a fairly broad-based interest in plants, but the native plants are really, uh, for me, so important because of that interrelationship and that coevolution. But um, I do, I love the tropicals. Um, I finally got to go to the tropics in the 80s to go to Costa Rica and see my houseplants in the wild, which mm -hmm. was so exciting. Yeah. Uh, but I always carried that love and that fantasy um, until actually getting there. And I've been going to the tropics regularly since that time. So. Yeah. What would you say your favorite, uh, maybe two favorite native plants are that can be found in the United States? Probably what Virginia bluebells have to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, what a, what a show. Yeah. And I planted, we have a creek that runs through the property. And early on when we moved here, be 23 years this August, I think even that first spring we were here, I started planting bluebells down in the floodplain of our little creek. Mm. So by now I have great swaths of them and it really is a spectacular in the spring. And I'm always bringing in more seeds and occasionally buy another plug tray of them to, <laughs> to make more. And um, so, yeah, I, I absolutely love Virginia bluebells. Uh, another very important group for me is trilliums. And, you know, I live, I'm the house is on top of a dry hill. And so, of course, I planted lots of trilliums mm -hmm. and water them when absolutely necessary. But I started finding that little by little, the trilliums were showing up down in the richer soils on the slope above the creek and along the creek, because of course that's where the rich soil and moisture is, which the trilliums love. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the reasons that this spring, I moved my deer fence, which was up close to the house, out to the periphery of the property mm -hmm. so that the deer would stop eating my naturalized <laughs> trilliums that were down by the creek. And then I've been augmenting uh, ever since. And I have to also give a big nod to ferns. I'm, I'm very much a lover of ferns and a collector of ferns. Both Which today. one? Which one? Oh, well, I think maidenhair fern has to be one of the most yeah. gorgeous things ever created. Yeah. Uh, but I love them all, even down to the little uh, a native that's on the property is adder's tongue fern, which is in the family with the grape ferns. Uh, and that's uh, always, it just looks like a, it's a little oval leaf, <laughs> but it's, it's great. Very so, delicate, very delicate. Very yeah. delicate. You, a lot of people, you wouldn't think it's a fern because it's just a little oval, but. Um, so yes, ferns of all stripes. I also dearly love the Dixie wood fern, which is a hybrid fern between log fern and the uh, Louisiana fern, or Louisiana wood fern. And, it gets four feet tall and it's just gorgeous. So now, do you propagate that yourself or you're finding it? Oh, I buy it usually. Okay. I mean, it, it does, the log fern uh, actually spores around a bit on the property, a few ferns. Uh, and we have a beautiful native bank on above the creek of Christmas ferns. So, you, you know, of course, Christmas oh. fern, such a great mm -hmm. semi-evergreen. So yes, so always a nod to the ferns and then everything else. Yeah, I was gonna say, gee, well. I have I, some favorite families actually. You know, I love the butter, everything in the buttercup family. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they're so great. Clematis, uh, hepaticas, hellebores, of course. Yes. On which I wrote a whole book. 
Um, so yes, the Buttercup family is a, a, a popular one with me too and everything in that family. And the whole former Lily family to which Trillium used to belong, all the Solomon seals and bellworts and all those plants um, are very ones I truly cherish as well. So. so of the books you've written, what is your favorite book? What was the book that you had the best time doing the research for and pull it together? Well, certainly the Hellebore book was great because we got to travel all over England and, and um, Western Europe uh, with famous Hellebore people. You know, got to meet Elizabeth Strangman and hmm. Gisela Schmemann, who unfortunately died a few years ago, and uh, Will McLuhan, uh, John Massey at Ashwood. You know, uh, so... Dick and Judith Tyler and I did a lot of traveling in those years. Ernie and Mar Marietta O'Byrne from uh, Oregon traveled with us on a number of those trips too. So that was terrific. I mean, mm. we had doors open to us you know, that, that wouldn't normally have been open if yeah. we hadn't been working on the book. So wow. that, was, that was a joy. And it's about to be remaindered <laughs> as all, <laughs> you know. Really? I, yeah, I, it's they're not going. It's not going to be reprinted once it's sold out, which is not surprising. I mean, it's it's a huge tome. I remember the first book signing I did when the book came out. It's down in uh, Tidewater, Virginia, and very optimistic sponsor of the lecture had uh, bought boxes and boxes, and I don't know that person was obviously sure I was going to sell a million copies of the book. So she piled the table on both sides of me with volumes of books. And I was sitting there rather expectantly waiting for someone to take notice. And these two women came walking by and they saw me sitting there with the books. And they did a sidelong glance and then veered away from the <laughs> table. And I heard one of them say to the other one, can you imagine an entire book on hellebores? And they both broke into hysterical laughter. <laughs> So that was a rather fun and humbling um, introduction to putting that book out there. Um, it's a great book. It, it's a fun book. It's thorough. Um, <laughs> you can definitely stop a door with it, but <laughs> it, was, it was very fun to do. Yeah. And it, well, it, it was nice uh, that it was recognized by the American Horticulture Society. Yeah. Are you going to write another book? I've got lots of ideas and no discipline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> writing that book was, um, it, it was, the whole process was three and a half years of my life. Um, mm. Eat, sleep, breathe, drink. Yeah. You know, through the writing process, the editing, you know, Timber Press is a great press, but it's a do-it-yourself operation. Yeah. You pretty much have to hand them everything done, which was a new for me, having written for Meredith and Rodale and other uh, companies that did so much of the groundwork for you mm -hmm. that you have to do for yourself. So it was exhausting. And so I, I've been a little tentative <laughs> getting back into the water because I realize how consuming it will be to, to do it. But I need to. I want to write about this garden and my approach to working with natural succession uh, as a 
as kind of the guiding force behind keeping the garden as low maintenance po as possible and keeping it as wildlife friendly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things I'm, I'd like to write about, but I'm not disciplined. Yeah, well, the, the, the work day I want to sit in the garden, not write about it or work in it. Or <laughs> we all know that feeling, that's for sure. So, if natives, because natives, uh, and, and this being pollinator week of all things, which of the uh, which number one native would you suggest as the pollinator plant that most people should have? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Well, of course, the whole idea behind thinking about pollinators is there is no one plant. Right. Because uh, larvae feed on one group of plants and nectar on another. Mm -hmm. uh, these, you know, the, the life cycles of these insects are tied to many, many plants. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly there are some plants that the insects absolutely adore and are always on. Mm -hmm. Mountain mints are great for uh, nectaring uh, and pollen uh, with all manner of insects, beetles, all kinds of you know, bu bugs, beetles, and yeah. So it's a and when I say bugs, I mean you know the true bugs, right. not just bugs as a catch-all. But um, yeah, so though there's just so many, um, and not every plant that's a great pollinator plant is native. I know there's a lot of push to only plant natives, and I do support using natives as the backbone of any landscape, uh, especially if it's small and there's not a lot of, of um, native community around, to, especially to support the larval plants. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Nepeta, absolutely covered yeah. with bees of every stripe. So I would never banish certain non-native plants from my garden. Mm -hmm. uh, ever. Uh, but I do think there's a suite of native plants that's really critical. But it's about having something in bloom all the time. So it really isn't about one, one potential plant. plant. Yeah. Um, and that's sometimes I think the mistake that gets made in promoting the pollinator garden is something that's really pretty in June, you know, with the cone flowers and things. And of course, that's important. Coneflower is another great plant, but it's not native where I live. Right. You know, it's not native within several states to where I live. So um, it really depends also on how you define a native plant. If you think of it ecologically and the niche in which it evolved, that's a very different thing from just a plant native east of the Appalachian Mountains or east of the Mississippi or whatever. So. Um, um, I, if I'm going to really talk about native plants, I tend to define them fairly narrowly mm -hmm. um, as having co-evolved in, in the system, which cuts out a lot of great quote-unquote native plants from our pollinator gardens and our landscapes. Uh -huh. So in my mind, purple coneflower and nepeta are really both non-native plants, and they both have a place in my garden, but they're, you know, uh, coneflower is native to a few states away. Nepeta is native a continent away, but uh, they're both neither is native to Virginia. Right. Certainly not native originally to the site where I live. So, so you do practice diversity in your garden to keep everything going. 
Yes, I think diversity is really the key. And I think sometimes we get too hung up on that. It has to be native by definition, whatever your native definition is. Mm -hmm. um, I think more importantly, it is about the structure and function of the garden that we're creating. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I want nesting birds, I have to have a complex vertical and horizontal structure to the garden mm -hmm. to protect nests from nest predators. And you know, it's, it's very complicated. So mm -hmm. uh, although it's not that complicated if you distill it down, but sometimes I think it gets oversimplified into if it's native, it's good. If it's not native, it's bad. Right. And it's really, for me, it's about the ecological role that the structure of that garden provides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people say, well, don't prune your shrubs. You know, it's not natural. <laughs> but, you know, if you're in a small urban garden with a lot of urban predators like cats and, and suburban gardens with cats and raccoons, then a tightly pruned hedge is much safer for a bird because the branch structure keeps the predator from being able to get to the nest. So right. again, I, I don't go by rules. Right, right. <laughs> I, I, I think we trap ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I do think it is can be sufficiently complicated that we do, we do have to show people a pathway forward. We can't make it so complex people throw up their hands. And I think, too, a little, often what can happen is if, you know, native is good and it has to be within 50 miles of your property or 20 miles of your property, then people are going to throw up their hands with that, at that too. Mm -hmm. And say, well, I, mean, I can't, how, how could I possibly do that? Right. So I think we really have to look at this uh, with a kind heart to what is our, our goal. You know, what do we really want to do here? If we want to help the pollinators, if we want to have places that are safe for birds. And, um, you know, one of the, I posted fairly recently on Facebook, a uh, Asian praying mantis grabbing a hummingbird on a hummingbird feeder. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's those that will say, well, I would never put up a hummingbird feeder because that makes the birds vulnerable. That would never happen in my garden. Well, <laughs> the Asian mantis is much more camouflaged on native plants or anything green to snatch all our butterflies and bumblebees and even our hummingbirds from our plants. And, you know, that was well-intentioned to introduce the mantis to control pests. But those mantises eat far more butterflies, bumblebees, and other things than they do pests. Mm -hmm. And they're so much bigger than our little native mantis. Yeah. Yeah. So... Again, we've done a lot of things being well-intentioned and I'm, I'm not a, discouraging us from being well-intentioned and trying things, but um, we also have to kind of stand back and pay attention to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that, I think, is to decide what our goals are and then to, to kind of work ourselves into that goal right. and be really clear about it. Right. Yes. Uh, a, a garden of just regionally native plants within 50 or 150 miles, whatever you deem appropriate for the genetics of the plant and how you define nativity is great if that's your goal. But and I'm all for it. But, but if that's not your goal, um, then don't feel shamed by those who say that's the only way you can garden. Right. So to me, it's really about 
how that plant fits into the ecology of the garden and that that plant isn't invasive. Um, and of course, that, that definition is changing all the time. Plants that weren't invasive 20 years ago um, are becoming more invasive because of climate change and other things. So that's a constantly evolving assessment. Mm -hmm. um, but also we have, to, we have to define invasive properly. You know, invasive isn't a monarda that romps through your double-dyed <laughs> beds. Invasive is a plant that escapes cultivation and changes the structure or function of your local ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So that's really what the key to being invasive is all about. It's not a seedling you find, you know, on the edge of the driveway, um, although that can be a precursor to a, showing that a plant could be invasive. But um, it's, it's really about a plant from our gardens or you know, many of our worst invasive plants were not garden plants to begin with. They were oops plants and invasive insects as well that came by other means. Mm -hmm. That's not to say we don't have a cadre of in very invasive garden plants as well, but that's, that's, um, that's defined invasive properly. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, when we find a plant to be truly invasive, uh, let's get the word out. There's there's software out there for early notification when a plant becomes invasive. You know, there's a lot of ways to be proactive as a gardener mm -hmm. um, that that has a good impact uh, without narrowing it so much to say you have to do this and can't do that in your garden. There's other ways to approach it. So if you had, you know, this year, because of this unintentional pausing period, mm -hmm. everybody wants to garden. If you had some words to leave with the listeners that have just started on this garden journey, what would those words be? I would say start from the heart. If there's a plant you have a, a childhood memory of that someone you loved loved, something you saw somewhere that set your heart aflutter, uh, that's where you should start. And it doesn't matter what that plant is. It could be an orchid at the supermarket. It could be a philodendron you saw in Costa Rica or on a trip. Maybe you've never gardened. You went to some, uh, you went to the islands to lie on the beach and you saw something in the garden at the hotel. It's something that you saw in a park or a botanical garden. Start there and don't be afraid to start small and don't let someone tell you what you want, what you're doing and what you love is not good or is wrong. You'll learn that eventually if it truly is wrong. Uh, but don't, don't cut yourself off at the knees when you start. Uh, I always love the story of how Roger Torrey Peterson got, Peterson got interested in birding. And when he was young, and if we're all lucky enough, as I was to start when young, when we're young, that's great. Not everyone does. Mm -hmm. People come to it at every age, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. Uh, but Peterson was walking in the woods and he saw something hanging on the side of a tree. And he went to touch it and it, it burst into wing and flew away. And it was a flicker that was resting on the side of the tree. And that changed his world and it changed our world the Peterson Field Guides, mm -hmm. and, you know, um, it changed the way we studied nature and our whole exposure to the natural world from a singular experience that he had. So, you know, that's why I say start where that experience was. Something mm -hmm. caught, caught you. And um, 
then go with it. Go back to that as your starting point. Um, and if it happened today, start today or tomorrow. <laughs> uh -huh. Don't wait. I remember a story uh, when I lived in Minnesota. We, would, we traveled all over the state. We'd go on day trips halfway across the state or all the way across the state. Wow. I remember a woman that we often traveled with. We were bird watching and looking at plants and you know, chasing prairie crocus. And uh, one of our friends had, we'd gone out to this nature reserve on the western border with South Dakota as a day trip. And Carol was, her name was Carol, she was relating to her coworkers what she'd done over the weekend. And one of her coworkers said, I just can't wait till I retire because I've always wanted to go out and see that place. Mm. And so we'd just been for the day, mm. yet this person's whole frame of reference was, it was something he needed to be retired to do. Um, which seems silly to us as mm -hmm. crazy young people running around doing things, but that was his world yeah. view. And, and so to, to belittle that would be silly because that was a dream for him. Mm -hmm. And even if that dream meant he had to be 67 or whatever age to be able to go out and experience that, that's what we all have to do. We all have to find our path and come to that joy whenever and however we can. So I, just, I loved that. I thought it was so interesting that some, and in a way it was humbling that I took for granted in a way, this ability to run out there. Right when this was a life's journey for him. So all of our life's journeys are different. Right. And all on a different scale and on a different time frame. Right. But the most important thing is that we do it. Yes, and that you have that dream and that, that at whatever point is comfortable for you in your, in your journey that you do it. Yeah. So we didn't get a chance to talk about your garden tours, but... Well, I have a little time if you want to put that up in <laughs> Well, let's talk about it. What What's your favorite garden tour? Because you do, you write books, you design naturalistic landscapes and garden tours. Tell me about a tour. Well, of course, my joy as a child, um, all the way up through now, was, a, was going to nature to see the plants I loved and discover new plants and going to gardens to see plants I loved and discover new plants. So... Uh, I was lucky enough to be asked uh, from time and time uh, by different organizations and uh, by Horticulture Magazine, where I really first started doing a lot of garden tours when I was a contributing editor for them. Mm -hmm. And they had their travel program still, which is unfortunately defunct, uh, to start to escort tours to places I loved. So I would, you know, England is, of course, just impossible to ignore as far yeah. as wonderful gardens, both public and private. But uh, the world is an oyster for people who love to travel and can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't have to go on an expensive garden tour. Uh, they can go however they can get there. You know, I used to travel on a shoestring budget just to get there. Mm -hmm. They flea bank hotels in Costa Rica just to get to Costa Rica, you know, take a, a flight where it might take me three days to get on it. But it was, it was, I could afford it. You know, now I have the luxury of being able to, you know, book a ticket for a time that's convenient to me. 
mm-hmm. uh, and go. And when I'm leading a tour, of course, I have the luxury to take people and stay in places that are, we don't stay super high end, we stay middle of the road. My tours are very expensive for some people, but for others, they're middle of the road compared to some tours, they're very inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to strike the middle and we try to do things that are really fun. We try to see the gardens, but we also try to, to have unique culinary experiences to, to mm-hmm. eat and eat. Um, I did a tour to Chicago and we had a catered dinner in Rick Bayless's library room, you know, served by private chefs. Oh. So we try to do, you know, something like that that's a unique experience on top of the experience of seeing gardens. Mm-hmm. Because I've been lucky enough to meet so many gardeners around the world, I've been able to get into some gardens that might not otherwise be open to the public, and that's been wonderful as well. But, and 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 that's not to say uh, we try to make the tour exclusive. We don't. We just I try to use my world experience to to give a unique experience on the trip that. Mm-hmm that people might not be able to get if they just, you know, pop over on their own. And that's why people like to travel with me and with other great tour operators. There's so many wonderful tour operators in mm-hmm. this country um, that have, some of whom are friends, uh, many of whom are acquaintances. Mm-hmm. And they, get, they create wonderful tours too. All of our tours are different. They have a thread that's similar. Mm-hmm. We visit a lot of the similar spa- places, but they have contacts and friends mm-hmm. that I don't. And, so all those experiences are unique. And so it's just, it's fun to do it. And of course we were derailed this year, but we're yeah. trying to put together uh, our, in hopes of being able to travel next year. And people can visit my website at gardenandnaturetours.com and sign up for my mailing list. And We'll keep you abreast of where things stand in the world <laughs> as we find out. We're pretty unsure now, but we're keeping tabs. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I, hope to, I hope to start traveling next year again. Well, the way I look at it, a lot of things have been canceled this year, so people should bank that money. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so they can go on your tour that much, it's so much easier that way. So, well, we will definitely um, go to your website. And can you repeat that one more time? Uh, it is gardenandnaturetours.com okay. is my travel website. And then my design and lecture and writing website is ccostonburrell.com. All righty. Well, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And it's been a pleasure to get to know you. Oh, my Facebook friend. I know. (laughs) Just, oh, just you wait. I'm coming down to Bird Hill. Trust me. Okay. That's a a promise. Yes, it is a promise. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too. And take care and stay safe and uh, garden. Thank you. Garden, that's what it's about. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I told you he was awesome. Seriously. Sometimes, you know, when you meet somebody or you just really can identify with someone from afar, reach out. You never know how they may or may not respond. I am in hog heaven just knowing that I've had a conversation 
would see Colston Burrell. I didn't put it off. I just reached out and connected. And I'm so glad that I did. When you have special people in your life, I like to find or create a poem that speaks to that person. I found one part of a poem that all of us might have read at one point called Nature by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I'm just going to read a little bit of it for you. So nature deals with us and takes away our playthings one by one and by the hand leads us to rest so gently that we go scarce knowing if we wish to go or stay being too full of sleep to understand how far the unknown transcends the what we know no one ever would have told me that i would have had an opportunity to speak with someone that I admired so much. Remember, go into the garden, engage with nature, become familiar with your surroundings and make a memory. Meditate on it, embrace it, and make it a part of the essence of your being. Please follow me, cottageinthecourt.com, on Twitter and Instagram, Cottage in Court, Facebook, Cottage in the Court, and of course, this podcast. I've got a few more friends I'd like to introduce you to, so I'm going to call this my friends and family season. Stick with me. I've got a lot more in store. <music>